Good morning, and the conversation continues as we ease on into a beautiful WIP Sunday here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon, and we're going to get right to work this morning. We've got a lot to say. Pennsylvania has recently passed a law legalizing medical marijuana. It's with that in mind I've offered, I've invited my next guest, Dr. Ravi Ivkar. He's got a lot to say, and he's the author of a new book, Cannabis for Chronic Pain. Good morning, doctor. Good morning, and it's uh, Rav right. Ifker. Ifker. Okay, thank you for correcting me. Rav Ifker. Okay. Okay. So now we got the name right, and um, what would you like to talk about? I want to talk about cannabis for chronic pain. Terrific. Is it a good idea? I mean, I'm, I've got this vision of people walking around stoned all the time. Yeah, no, it's, it's a very good idea if you have chronic pain and if you use it appropriately. And um, the, um, the strains that people use to get stoned are not necessarily, in fact, in most cases, are not that effective for treating pain. Okay. So what? you just need to that that's why I wrote the book. And uh at this point I've I've seen over uh, over the course of the last 6 years I've seen more than 7,000 chronic pain patients who are using medical marijuana uh quite effectively. Uh and and most of them uh have either completely gotten off of opioids or uh, have significantly reduced their dose. So as you are well aware, we're in the midst of a, an opioid crisis in this country. There are over 150 people dying every day from opioid overdose. So, so this is very helpful. All right. And I'm going to confess something now, doctor. I suffer from chronic pain after back surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I see many of those patients. I have um, oxycodone at home in my medicine cabinet. Mm-hmm. And when it hurts real bad, that's where I go. Um, you're telling me that I should be going somewhere else, aren't you? Well, I'm, I'm telling you that um, uh, the oxycodone is... Um, it is effective, but most people are not happy with the side effects, and um, and many people are overdosing and dying. So, I I have found um, many many of my patients are able to completely uh, stop the uh, uh, oxycodone and and similar opioids and. Um, and use mar- uh, marijuana. Now, the medical marijuana it can be administered in, in a number of ways, and I don't, I don't ever recommend smoking. So, you know, I, I, I understand the image that most people have. But um, the um, – and, and what – uh, most of my patients are able to do is to gradually taper off of the opioids as they. I mean, it's not it's not like an either or that you that you you flick a switch and you're off of one and on to the other. 
but it's a, a, a gradually tapered dose, and you're replacing it with the medical marijuana. If you're not to smoke it, how do you use it? You, um, for uh, immediate relief, um, I recommend um, the only other way to get that, that immediate effect uh, is vaporizing. And the vaporizer is like a miniature oven. It just heats it without any combustion and no flame, and most importantly, no smoke. And um, the um, interesting, the temperature setting is 375 degrees, um, which is just like your oven. And uh, but unlike your oven, uh, it, it the uh, a, a decent vaporizer will be able to heat the um, um, flour up to um, 375 within 10 seconds, and you're ready to go. And it works. It starts to work within two to three minutes, and and you get pain relief. The the only um, uh, downside of the um, uh, inhaling, um, vaporizing, or smoking is that it only lasts for two to three hours. All of the other methods of administration are much longer. Um, the tinctures, liquids with a dropper, um, last for about four to six hours, and the big advantage there is that you're able to self-titrate and determine the best dose for you. Um, and those drops are sublingual, so under your tongue, and um, it takes about a half an hour to 45 minutes before it begins to work, but then you've got pain relief for four to six hours. And um, there are now tablets, uh, pills that you um, uh, swallow, and, um, and those will work for uh, up to six to eight hours. Uh, and there are transdermal patches uh, with the medicine in them, and, um, and those will last for 10 to 12 hours. So there's just a, as a wide variety of methods of administration, uh, all of which work uh, and with different durations, but none of them work immediately uh, as you would get with the inhalation. Uh, of the vaporizing uh, or smoking. But as, a, as I said, the, the smoking, um, first of all, is not healthy for your respiratory tract, but it, it also you are dealing with um, uh, toxins in the smoke, with, which can be carcinogenic and increase the inflammation. Now, in your case, you've got inflammation in your back. And... Um, the, the toxins in the smoke will contribute to more inflammation. And inflammation is, is a part of most chronic pain conditions. Uh, in my book, I cover um, uh, the use of medical marijuana 
for relieving uh, the pain of most of the common chronic pain conditions, including low back pain. I have a chapter devoted to each of these, uh, osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis, migraine headache, fibromyalgia, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, uh, neuropathy, and shingles. Um, I had a, an awful case of shingles uh, two and a half years ago, um, and the, um, the conventional uh, medication that uh, my colleagues were recommending uh, really didn't work well at all, and it was absolutely, it was miraculous, um, the relief that I got with the medical marijuana. Uh, the pain was off the charts, and it, it brought it right down to a, a two to three from uh, a nine or ten. Um, and um, uh, the um, uh, pain uh, associated with cancer, cancer treatment, um, and the, the, from the cancer itself. Um, uh, and I deal with, um, uh, in the book, uh, probably uh, one of, other than chronic pain, the most, con most frequent use of medical marijuana is for insomnia. It works hmm. extremely well, um, as well as anxiety, which is what keeps most people awake. So, um, and uh, so did I answer your question? You know, the other methods. These Absolute. were the other methods of administration. Absolutely, sir. Okay. Um, the only place that this stuff will be available is at a marijuana dispensary, true? True. How does insurance feel about it? What's your experience? Uh, insurance does not cover it. And, and it's generally not cheap. When you say not cheap, what are you looking at? I know it probably varies from dispensary and state yeah, to state. Yeah, it does, and uh, it's it's hard to say. Now, do you still do you uh, at this point uh, have dispensaries open and available um, in to patients in Pennsylvania? No, they've just awarded. They're just in the process now of awarding the licenses. I see. Um, Oh, and in your case, uh, and uh, for most people with, um, with chronic pain of the musculoskeletal nature or low back pain, there are topicals, interestingly enough. You don't get high at all with these creams and, and gels. Um, you just get pain relief, and it's, they're quite effective. Uh, you get about two hours of pain relief hmm. just with the topical. Now there are many there are many variations in the marijuana plant, aren't there? Well, it's it's an interesting plant. It's it's um, it's quite complex. Um, in the cannabis plant, you've got over eighty different cannabinoids, and the the one that m most people are familiar with is THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, um, because it's the most psychoactive of all of the 80 cannabinoids. And now many people are familiar with cannabidiol, CBD, which is not psychoactive, but is really quite a, an incredible medicine. It's, um, it's good for pain. It's an anti-inflammatory. It's a muscle relaxant. 
Um, it, it helps you to relax by reducing anxiety, um, and it helps with sleep. I don't think there's a pharmaceutical drug in the world that does all, all five of those things, and it's also helpful for treating seizures. Hmm. And, and that's why it's uh, gained such a, uh, attention um, in the media uh, because of its work with um, uh, seizures, in children especially. Now, there, but there are different varieties when I say things like um, Hindu Kush as an example. Yes, that's a um, – so if you're, you're looking at the flower – um, the, 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 the weed itself, um, your, there are two major strains, uh, or <clears throat> uh, the uh, sativa and indica. And the sativa strains uh, are generally high in THC. And... Um, THC, as I said, is the most psychoactive. So the sativa strains tend to make you more high, and the THC is mainly affecting your mind, not your body, which is why the uh, sativa is not nearly as good a medicine in general as the indica strains. The indica strains tend to have a bit more CBD and always less THC than the sativa. So Hindu Kush, the specific strain that you just mentioned, is an indica and a fairly strong indica. And when you uh, go into a, a medical dispensary, you'll find that the flower is... Um, stored in jars, canisters, on the counter, uh, and the, uh, each jar is uh, labeled, and the ratio of indica to sativa is on each jar. So you can pick and choose. So if you, the, the strongest indica strains, uh, for instance, the Hindu Kush, is um, uh, happens to be very good for sleeping. So, and that's a, approximately an 80-20 ratio of indica to sativa. So, if you want something for sleep, you would buy an 80-20 indica. Um, if you want something that is good for pain, and um, and what we're finding is that the most effective strains for pain happen to be a a, a true hybrid, a 50-50 sativa to indica, and there are a number of these because what we found is that although CBD is an excellent pain reliever. It works more effectively if you um, combine it with some CBD, I, excuse me, some THC. And um, 
the, and, and as a result, you do get high to some extent, but it's not like a sativa with a high THC. So it, it's really not a problem. You can function quite well with chronic pain uh, and, a, um, and, a, and a hybrid. Um, it's, it's, in general, it's not a problem. And there are there are a number of these fifty-fifty uh, uh, hybrids, so it's um, it, it, it's really. I, I mean, I've been a family doctor for forty-five years. I've never seen a medicine like this. I mean, they're just there. There really are no bad side effects. They haven't. They've yet to find any any fatalities. And it doesn't kill anyone. Um, and opioids are killing 150 people a day. And that number, as recently as 2014, was only was 52 people a day. So this, is, this problem is, is getting worse um, very rapidly. It's, uh, it's, um, I mean, uh, I think President Trump called it a national emergency uh, two weeks ago. And I'd like to say thank you to Dr. Ifkar, his new book, Cannabis for Chronic Pain. He's given us a primer and lots to think about. Thank you, Dr. Ifkar. You're quite welcome. And it's WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. We'll be back after these messages. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP, All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. And I'm pleased to welcome now a guest that's going to help us remember the significance of tomorrow as we remember 9-11 as we talk with Jessica Dulong. Jessica's the title of a new book, Dust Deliverance, Untold Stories from the Maritime Evacuation of 9-11. Good morning, Jessica Dulong. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for being with us. Jessica, when we think of 9-11, we think of the firemen, the policemen, brave civilians running into the tower and trying to save as many lives as possible. Why don't we think of the maritime evacuation as well. Well, you know, it's interesting that um, New York City and really the, the, the country of the United States actually grew up around its waterways. And um, as we became further and further removed from that history, there was sort of a blind eye cast to uh, the importance that the uh, that the waterfront plays um, in our everyday lives. And, and really what happened that day was that um, it became extremely important all of a sudden that Manhattan is in fact an island and if you live in this area as I do it's really easy to forget you know with the convenience of the bridges and the tunnels and the subways um, that in fact you are talking about an isolated landmass and that became extremely important that day. Take us back to that day and what happened please. It, it really was an absolutely remarkable day for so many reasons. Um, and uh, what what happened was from the f- moment the first plane hit, uh, even before anybody knew that there was um, something bigger going on, mariners were already taking into account the fact that an accident, even if it was just an accident at the World Trade Center, was going to disrupt transportation. And so even within the first minute after the first plane hit, you had New York Waterway ferry captains and other ferry companies uh, recognizing that there was going to be a particular need for their services. Um, the World Trade Center is actually located quite close to the water and um, quite close, close to a cove called North Cove. 
uh, where there, there are a whole bunch of commuters in that area. And so their normal ways for getting onto and off the island were going to be disrupted uh, with something going on. So they immediately, the ferry captains and, and uh, ferry officials, immediately made sure that um, any boats that were scheduled to go offline um, at the end of the, the rush hour morning commute would stay online. They, they pulled all of their boats that were available um, and got them crewed up and got them out on the waterways. And then, of course, as we know, it wasn't an accident, and the cascade of ca- catastrophe just quickly unfolded. And as each subsequent event occurred, situation on the uh, on Manhattan Island and all along the waterfront got more and more dire. Um, so what you have is you have people, as the towers are coming down, quite literally running for their lives, some of them successfully, some of them not successfully, and they ran until they ran out of land. And what they reached on the water's edge was a shoreline that had forgotten its maritime roots. It was redesigned with a uh, a passive view in mind, so these big railings that were hard to surmount to be able to... um, to get onto boats, um, and many of these people were so terrified that they jumped into the water, um, and they didn't realize how perilous the currents are in New York Harbor there. Uh, I have a number of stories from boat crews where uh, one gentleman, for example, you know, jumped in the water and was being swept out to sea when he was rescued by a ferry. Um, another uh, story, which I tell in great detail in the book, Dust to Deliverance, uh, is about a young woman who had just started her job at on Wall Street, and, um, and she describes jumping because she couldn't breathe. So she couldn't breathe on land, so she jumps in the water, and she talks about how she went underwater over and over again looking for oxygen. And if she told me this story, she, she told me, I know how crazy that sounds, but that was the level of desperation that morning. Where were these ferries coming from to go to New York or coming from New York to go to where? Well, it was a variety of locations. And what was really incredible was, you know, I, I started out by talking about the ferries because really at the beginning it became a sort of expanded ferry service and, and, you know, important but nothing so grand as that. And then, as I, as I say, the, the situation escalates and then you have a number of water rescues. An untold number of people are pulled out of the water um, and their lives saved by boat captains. Some of those were ferry captains. But uh, the, the evacuation expanded to in, uh, include people fishing boats from as far as Long Island. Um, you had tugboats coming from Staten Island, which is, you know, well out of the zone of, of danger, and they left their safe locations and, and headed straight for the dust. And these are boats that are not at all in the business of carrying passengers, um, and so they, they brought their boats to the occasion. The ferry boats themselves, um, many of them, many passengers, made a uh, pretty much a mile-long run across the Hudson River from Manhattan shores to New Jersey. Um, so some of the ferry operators, actually, um, it's a really good thing that they were pulling out of and pulling back into slips that they were very familiar with because as the dust conditions escalated, uh, they were operating. There was no visibility, and they were operating by radar. But even the radar couldn't penetrate the thickness. I mean, the descriptions that people uh, gave me of, of what it was like to be in that cloud. It was like one uh, one of the people I spoke with talked about how it was like be- putting your head in a bag of sawdust and trying to breathe. It was that intense. And so these mariners, 
we, we forget because we know ultimately what happened that day, but we forget that no one knew if this was the end of the attacks. And these mariners just pointed their, their boats and charted their course straight for hell, not knowing what was going to happen next because they recognized that they had equipment and skills that were essential to saving lives. And that's what they did. All, and they pulled people all over. They People went to Brooklyn, people went to Long Island, people went to close to the airport trying to get out of town, of course, the, not realizing that the airlines were all shut down. Um, and I even heard one uh, one tugboat brought some people to Rikers Island, which, as you may know, is the prison. So I don't know why they had a desperate need to get there, but any place that people needed to go, um, and there were maritime uh, crews that were, were ready to bring them. How did you find the people you talked to for the book, both the captains and the saved? Well, part of it, um, what was helpful is that this is my community. I'm a chief engineer of retired New York City fireboat John J. Harvey. And uh, while I wasn't there that morning, uh, I arrived uh, the day after and was involved with pumping operations uh, that provided the only firefighting water that was available on site. It was actually Hudson River water that was the only water that was available to firefighters um, at Ground Zero. So this is my community, and um, that really helped. Um, But what also was essential was the generosity of my sources, people I would ask them, you know, who else should I speak with? And everybody was ready to give a name um, and to share a story. I say everybody was ready, but actually there were some people who were very hesitant to walk through these days um, or these hours with me in some of their darkest days. Um, but they, you know, some shared stories with me for this book that had never, they'd never told anyone except their closest family because it was just so hard and so harrowing to walk through those experiences. But they did so out of this tremendous generosity, this need to record the history, this need to um, to really honor the the contribution that crews made um, to people who saved their lives. Um, and so so that was a, a way that that happened. But I really, I spread the word and so many people who were not even necessarily involved with this um, helped to spread the word because they recognized how important this history is. This is a crucial, crucial story of Americans, but humans coming together to help each other. And that's been really the focus for me is that this is this reveals the best of our shared human goodness. And it really shows how we have this kindness and this um, solidarity and resourcefulness and ability to form communities and come together in ways that are just really important for us to remember. And that's really been my focus is that this is a story of hope. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning to help us remember 9-11 and what happened, Jessica Dulong. Her new book, Dust to Deliverance, Untold Stories of the Maritime Evacuation on 9 September 11th. Jessica, stay with me. I've got to run a few commercials. We'll be back in just a bit. And we're back. We're talking 9-11 and the water rescues. We're talking with Jessica Dulong, her new book, Dust to Deliverance, Untold Stories from the Maritime Evacuation on 9-11. My name's Peter Solomon. Jessica, the most astounding story you found when you researched the book. Oh, it is really hard to pick one. Um, You know, one of them that really sticks out for me is uh, the story of an IT specialist. His name was Rich Varela, and he was working uh, sort of a temp 
job at the World Financial Center, which is right adjacent to the World Trade Center. And he, just through, you know, accident and circumstance, he ended up um, get, arriving in his comp data room, which is a sealed-off room with no windows um, and, and uh, the whir of equipment kind of set a background noise so he couldn't hear what was going on. Um, and, and he wound up in an elevator when the first plane hit and didn't realize uh, that it had happened and then wound up in his, in his little lair there and didn't know what was unfolding so close by, just a, a couple buildings away. And um, a friend called him and said, do you know what's going on? At first, uh, Rich thought that the friend must be joking. Um, and finally, he sort of registered what was happening and, uh, and made his way and tried to, uh, tried to flee. The tower, the first tower, came down when he was uh, basically at, at the foot of the tower, uh, a little bit further away, and he, he ran. And he ran until he got to the water's edge, and uh, there was an active-duty fireboat called the John D. McKean, and firefighters there were uh, preparing to engage in firefighting operations when the tower collapsed. Rich jumps on board, and um, immediately everyone is overtaken with the dust. There are hundreds of people, well, at least 100 people, jumping on board at the same time. Uh, one gentleman broke his leg when he hit the steel deck. There was another woman who seemed to be gravely injured when she fell. Um, but he tears off his shirt and uh, makes like a makeshift handkerchief to put around his face. He then uh, tears off other pieces of his shirt to share with the people near him. And they all, you know, ride out this this dust storm, this, this particulate you know, all-consuming mass that uh, that uh, takes over the air. Then this group of passengers, many of whom uh, I found their stories independently, um, they end up being evacuated across the river to the Jersey City Triage Center that had been set, set up. And um, Rich was helping people offload. Um, the man with the broken leg, he's carrying him with some other uh, firefighters, uh, carrying him to get him on shore with a chair. All of this stuff, and while this is happening, the firefighters turn around and they see that the second tower has just come down, and their first thought, of course, is all of their brother and sister firefighters who are there on site. And um, Rich, rather than saying, I'm really glad I'm in a safe place, I'm going to go get treated at triage, he says, I want to go back with you. So this civilian, he's just an IT guy, gets back on the boat and heads back to Manhattan Island to hell. No one knows, again, what is unfolding. And instead of uh, taking advantage of the safe position he was in, he's, he ends up back in Manhattan, in lower Manhattan, stretching hose lines with the firefighters shirtless because he's given up his shirt um, and, uh, and just working for hours. And the story has an interesting ending because that was the moment that changed his life. And he is now an FDNY firefighter because of how rewarding it was for him to be, feel that he could help other people in that way. So that is one of the remarkable stories that I tell in the book, Dust to Deliverance. Truly remarkable and truly a very, very brave man. It's true. But, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me about this story is that what I found over and over again is that people rose to the occasion. They, they stepped up in ways that they had no idea they had any capacity to do. And I think sometimes we, we divide the world into heroes and, and then everybody else. And really what this is a story of is the fact that we all have this capacity to help others. And that, that, that's sort of our default setting. And so through reporting this, I really, really came to realize that this, this story upends some of our common assumptions about 
our human and our own limitations. And instead, it really highlighted for me the resounding human goodness that rises up in the face of dark times and calamity. So we all have this in us. I guess is what I want to say is that we all have this capacity to help and we all have this impulse to help. And that was what was on display that morning, both uh, certainly in the in maritime evacuation that moved half a million people off of the island in a spontaneous effort. I mean, it's a tremendous story. And it was happening on land, too. Um, and we all have this capacity. And that's really the message that I want to put forth, that this is this is the hope that we have as we continue to face calamities and disasters, you know, with everything that's unfolding right now this morning um, in Florida. Um, it's really important to remember that we have the capacity to help each other and we do help each other and um, and we take care of our, our, our fellow citizens, our fellow people. Jessica, do you think the story of maritime evacuation is adequately told in the 9-11 Museum? You know, I haven't spent time enough to make a judgment call like that. I certainly think that more coverage is necessary, um, and I think it's time for it, too, um, because there, there, we're at a moment now where enough time has passed that um, – that it's important for us to sort of cast a wider net to be able to understand uh, more fully what went on that day. And, and I think it's important at this moment in time, and I think the landmark was the, the 15th anniversary, which passed last year, it, it really feels to me that it's time to, to uh, emphasize the coming together that that happened um, in in the minutes, hours, and days that followed this horrific terrorist attack. Um, that's the message I think that is really important for us to hold on to. So any opportunity to do that, I, I think, is a good one. Of all the books you could have written, though, why did you write this one? Well, you know, I'll be honest. I was really hesitant uh, to take this on. Um, I was actually commissioned by an editor to write this book, and I was worried. One of the things that I was worried about was um, certainly walking through those days because I have my my own issues <laughs> from my experiences working down there for several days um, and certainly was a life-changing experience for me. But also I, I worried that there was this sort of, call it 9-11 fatigue, that people were tiring of, of the stories because, you know, we, we also have this human need to sort of block out stuff that's too painful. Um, and the thing that really turned my thinking around was understanding this story of hope that I'm telling you about. This is, this is resilience. Um, and every example over and over again emphasized for me, every story, every person I talked to, it really, uh, these stories just really emphasize the power that we have within us to overcome and to confront horrific events and to rise up and become our best selves. And that is the part that, that carries forward. And that's why I think it's so important for this story to be told now. And it's, it's gone remarkably unreported. I'm just, I'm, I'm so surprised that this has not gotten more coverage. Um, and so that's why it was really, it felt to me like both an honor and a responsibility to tell this story and do it with absolute vigilance uh, toward accuracy and, um, and really collect this history because it, you have to do it now before it goes away, right? Um, and this document will last forever. Absolutely. And I'd like to say thank you to Jessica DeLong. Her new book, Dust to Deliverance, Untold Stories from the Maritime Evacuation on 9-11. We must never forget. Thank you, Jessica DeLong. Thank you so much for creating this space to share this story of hope. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. And it's been another edition of WIP Sunday here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio.
My name's Peter Solomon. Lots of details we need to tidy up. First of all, again, let's remember 9-11. All the people who perished, all the people who were there helping, showing the best of us in the time that made us feel like the worst. We must never forget. Let's also think about the people in Florida, let alone the people in Texas, recovering from Hurricane Harvey, and now the people in Florida recovering from Hurricane Irma. It's just beginning down there. I've seen pictures already of Miami starting to flood. It's going to be ugly, to say the least, and devastating, no matter what happens. The hurricane's wide enough to cover the entire state of Florida. It's an amazing thing. Our prayers, our hope, our love go out to the people of Florida. We want to help any way we can. Don't forget, you can always donate to the American Red Cross. They need the money to help those folks in Florida. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Always interesting and provocative discussion in the living room. Your opinions, Sunny's reactions, I know I'll be listening. Thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer. Couldn't do the show without you. And Ann Tideman Solomon, the associate producer, and my dear wife. Couldn't do the show without you either. Nothing left to say, but enjoy the rest of today and see you soon.